Mr. Harmon now looked rather more ruddy than bronzed to me, above that impeccable white shirt and dark jacket. Anyway, he radiated health and a shy charm. I wasn't sure whether he was ruddy now or blushing at having been caught in this office on a Sunday morning. He was constrained. Peterson was constrained. I could feel it, and of course, I had no idea why. There was about fifteen feet of office space separating us, and it didn't seem to be getting any smaller. While the workers are away, the drones will play, Mr. Harmon said feebly. His expression was jocular, but he didn't look happy. Don't let us disturb you from whatever it was you were doing, Peterson said equivocally. I was just showing Ben water around the plant. He's considering joining us to take charge of the sound work, recording, radio, maybe even TV if the FCC thing goes through. We hadn't even gotten around to talking about any of that, but I had no chance to mull it over, because Peterson was saying, Mr. Harmon, Mr. Water. And while I was making my way around a collating table, with its mimeo sheets stacked up on end in neat rows, to shake the famous man's hand, two more faces suddenly peered out from behind Horace Harmon's shoulder. One was a man's, I recognized him at once, and the other a very pretty girl's. Vaguely familiar, and a pleasure to look at even on the sunniest Sunday morning. A great pleasure, Mr. Water, Horace Harmon was saying very politely. He had a firm, manly grip, and I could feel the stone ring on his little finger cutting into the flesh of my palm. I do hope you're enjoying your tour. Fred Peterson isn't noticeably interested in vegetable life, but if you look sharp while he's showing off the physical plant, you'll see some unusual flora and fauna not native to these parts, a number of fine ginkgos imported by my father, some splendid old chestnuts planted by his father. I think the farm is beautiful, I said. It's certainly one of the most unusual places I've ever visited. It's had quite a history, but I really believe that this newest chapter is the most exciting and meaningful yet. He turned to Peterson. We were just shuffling through some of Victor's desk papers for a memo. He pronounced it memo. I'm typing up for the board meeting. I heard you. You're the noisiest damn thieves I've ever encountered. If you'd made any more racket, Victor could have heard it all the way down at his Manhattan apartment. Harmon laughed apologetically. Mr. Warder, I'm sorry, may I introduce you to Miss Joyce Jessup, or should I say, Mrs. Bedlam? Either will do. How do you do, Mr. Warder? Her grip was gentler than the millionaire's, but not much. An ambitious girl, the kind that looks as though she should be kneeling before a crackling fire stroking a pussycat but behind it all has nerves of iron, a will of iron, and a rigid mind cast only for the search for success. This is a specially American type, it seems to me. At least I've bumped into a number like Joyce around the country, but never abroad. Maybe with the Americanization of the world, all the girls are getting like ours. I wouldn't know. But this girl was pretty. Pale, clean, well turned out, a small but faintly pug nose, milky button earrings and a matching necklace that lay smoothly on her oatmeal cashmere sweater. The sweet, friendly, empty eyes of a Rheingold girl. And tough.
Her name wouldn't have meant anything to me, but when Horace Harmon said Mrs. Bedlam, I realized that she was the director's young wife. And then, of course, I remembered that she was a new young star in her own right, with two or three pictures to her credit and more due. Maybe that's why he mentioned both names. In any case, I was able to say something about recognizing her, which is always pleasant.